I invite you now to turn your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, the second chapter. We'll be looking this evening at verses 1 and 2, and so I'm going to read both of those verses for us. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. So may we tremble before it as such and receive it from him as such as we look to him in faith. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So let's ask him to bless his word to us now. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we know that you have caused your word to be written and preserved for our good and for your glory. And so we ask, therefore, that we might now hear your word and learn from your word and inwardly digest your word so that by your grace and through the comfort of the scriptures, we might embrace by faith and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us so graciously, so lovingly in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, unless you've been living under a rock the last several years, it's been quite unsettling to behold the collapse in many ways of our culture, hasn't it? here in America, here in the West, to see the direction of our country, to see the direction of our governing officials, it's unsettling. It's disturbing. And the rapid pace at which it's taken place is, it almost takes your breath away. And so the question that we find ourselves asking, the question you should ask yourself is, so what do we believe is the remedy to that? What do we believe is the solution to this issue that we see in our country? And I wonder what your answer to that question is. Well, you know, we got to get those strategic political figures that can make a difference in strategic political positions so that we can turn the ship. We got to get the youth. We got to get the kids when they're young. We got to train them. We got to educate them. We've got to make them aware of the historical documents that our founding fathers wrote so that they would understand these important ideas and how they then show up in life. We've got to make sure they understand morality and the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. Now, those things are good, and I'm not saying they're not worth some of our effort. But I wonder if on your list, and it should be at the top of the list, is the answer that the church should pray more. That the church corporately should give itself to praying for our government. To praying specifically for the authorities that are over us. Because that's exactly where Paul goes in our text here. 
Paul says, you want to know the answer to what ails society? The church needs to pray. And so what we're going to talk about tonight, the topic, is the priority of prayer in the church. The priority of prayer. That's what Paul is dealing with here. And he says it's a priority because he says it's of first importance. First of all, then, I charge you as the church, pray. And so that's our topic for this evening. And as a bit of an outline to help guide us through these two verses, I want us to answer, because the text does, these three questions. Three questions. First of all, the first question is, what kinds of prayers ought we to pray? What kinds of prayers should we pray? We see the answer to that in the first half of verse 1. Then we'll answer the question, who should we pray for? We see that in the second half of verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, who we should be praying for. And then the third question that our text answers for us is, why should we pray? Why should we pray for authorities, for all kinds of people, and pray all sorts of prayers? Paul gives us the answer to that. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope that as we hear God commanding us as the church, primarily, And then secondarily, as individual Christians, individual sons and daughters of the living God, that we would give ourselves to prayer. And it only makes sense that we do, doesn't it? Because the very heartbeat of our communion with God is what? It's prayer. And so I pray that he uses his word to cause us to commit ourselves anew to prayer. As a church and individually our fellowship with him might be deepened and we might walk in accord with his word. So let's look first then at the first question. What kinds of prayers should we pray? And before we even look at that, actually, I just want to point out, logically, it makes sense that this is what Paul now turns his attention to, given what he's already talked about in the first chapter of this first letter to Timothy. Because in the first chapter, you'll recall what he's talking about is he's talking about the importance of pure doctrine in the preaching of the church. He says, Timothy, I left you there so that you might set the erring elders who are there straight because they're falling into teaching all sorts of things that they ought not to teach. And they're perverting the law of God. And so really what he's dealing with there is the preached word of God in its purity, that that is a priority for the church. And then now he switches to this next priority that he commands that urge there is, I charge you, Timothy, I charge you, Ephesian church, to give yourself to prayer. And that makes sense because there's two elements that we give ourselves to in public, the public worship of God, that we're commanded by God to give ourselves to. And what are those two primary elements? The preached word, And then what? Prayer. And this should make perfect sense to us. Because every relationship that you have is one in which others communicate with you, and then you communicate back with them. Well, in the preached word, as it is read, preached, sang, prayed, God is speaking to us as his people. And then in prayer, in response to his word, we then speak to him. And so this is what Paul then turns our attention to, that of first importance is prayer. So back to the question, what kinds of prayers should we pray? 
Well, we get the answer in verse 1, so look there with me. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Four words that Paul uses here to describe prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And throughout the history of the church, various commentators have tried to explain, well, see, supplications is this kind of prayer. And prayers are these sorts of prayers. And intercessions are these sorts of prayers. And thanksgivings, and even John Calvin, in his very helpful sermon series throughout the the letter of Paul to Timothy, he gives a brief explanation of each of these words, but he ends that explanation saying, at the end of the day, I don't really know what each of these terms is referring to. And do you know why that is? We don't have time to do it tonight, but if you took each of these four Greek words and you looked at how Paul used them in other places in the New Testament, in the rest of his epistles, he uses these terms very interchangeably. And so they're not specifically designating specific types of prayers. Okay, so if that's true, then what is Paul communicating to us here? Why does he use four different words to explain prayer to us and say you ought to be engaged in these sorts of prayers well I think what Paul is up to is he's using these various terms to tell us that we ought to be engaged as God's people as the church corporately in all kinds of prayers prayers to God for help prayers to God for thanks when he provides that help that we so desperately need prayers of confession Prayers asking the Lord for forgiveness and then thanking him for that forgiveness. Asking him to illuminate his word to us that we might understand it. Praying that he would set apart the common ordinary elements of grape juice and crackers unto a holy use as a sacrament that he uses to build up his people. And so I think what Paul is saying, as the church ought to give ourselves to this kind of prayer, he's saying that's going to show up in all sorts of different ways as various needs arise. And we have all sorts of examples of these various sorts of prayers throughout the scripture. So what kinds of prayers should we pray? We should pray all kinds of prayers. And just by way of application, Sovereign Grace, I hope that you're encouraged as you actually see that in our corporate worship services, both in the morning and in the evening. You see that a lot of those prayers that I just mentioned, all of them actually, are prayers that find themselves in the corporate worship services, both in the morning and the evening. In the invocation, we ask the Lord for his help to help us worship him so that we're not distracted, so that we're not approaching him in the flesh, carnally, But we come before him and worship him in spirit and in truth. And then we pray, Lord, we confess our sins to you. We know we've violated your law. We know we've broken it. Forgive us our sins. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Illuminate now the scriptures to us. And then there's the pastoral prayer where we pray for all sorts of things. And there's all sorts of prayers in there. I don't want us to miss this. Primarily what Paul is telling Timothy here is that ought to mark the corporate worship of the church. Now, how do we know that? We know that from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, listen, the whole reason I'm writing you, Timothy, 
I want to come and be with you at the church in Ephesus, but if I have to tarry, which I think is going to be the case, I'm writing this letter so that you will know how to behave in the church of God, the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So the primary application here is for the church corporately, that we ought to pray in a variety of ways like this. This is why we pray the way that we pray tonight. If you're here and you didn't know that we're going to do that, guess what? We are. There's going to be a variety of prayers, adoring God, confessing to God our sin, praying in a variety of ways for a variety of things, specifically tonight for our local church. And the reason that we do this, Sovereign Grace, you need to know this, it's not just because we think it's a good idea, because God has commanded us to do this. And it's our privilege to commune in fellowship with him through prayer. Now, secondarily, by way of application, this should show up in your private devotion with the Lord. It should show up when you gather it with smaller groups of other believers. It should show up like in your grace group. It should show up in family worship. I hope that as various needs arise, you understand that at your disposal is a variety of ways to pray. And if you wonder, well, how am I supposed to pray? Look at the scriptures. (laughs) They provide all sorts of prayers for us. And so what Paul is saying here is, give yourself church, corporately gathered to all sorts of prayers. And do that individually. And do that in smaller groups. Do that in family worship. Because this is our great privilege, brothers and sisters. The communion and fellowship that we lost with God in the fall, in the first Adam, has now been restored to us in Christ, the second Adam. And so it's our privilege now to commune with the Lord through prayer, and we ought to engage in that prayer by praying various sorts of prayer. So now that we've looked at the types of prayers we're to pray, a variety of ways, let's answer the next question, which is, who should we pray for? Who should we pray for? And we get the answer there again in verses 1 and 2. So let me read those for you. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So I hope you see how easy the answers to these questions are. Just kind of falls out at you, doesn't it? Who should we pray for? All people, all sorts of people, all kinds of people. Now, who does that include? Well, it doesn't exclude anybody. So does that include believers? Yes. We ought to pray for other believers. We ought to pray even for ourselves. You see that all throughout Scripture. Hopefully you see that on Sunday morning. We pray for ourselves. We pray for one another. In a variety of ways. Having said that, the emphasis really here in verse 1 and 2 is that we are to pray for all sorts of unbelievers. All sorts of unbelievers. Now, you say, how do you know that from the text? Well, look at the beginning of verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions. Now, you say, well, you say they're to pray for kings. So, how does that equate unbelievers? Well, (laughs) there weren't believing kings back then. I mean, I like to do this thought experiment. Go there with me. Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And you know, Paul's not just writing this to Timothy. The expectation and what happens is Timothy receives this letter from Paul and then he reads it out loud 
to the Ephesian church. And so I can imagine that when Timothy reads the words of Paul, inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I can imagine some in the Ephesian church rolling their eyes and sighing. Ugh, maybe even audibly. We got to pray for the king. Do you know who the king was at this time? The emperor of the Ephesians? It's Nero. Was Nero any friend of Christians? No. We don't have time to go into all the atrocities that wicked man committed. But just one example is he would take Christians, wrap them in wax, and burn them alive in his gardens to light them at night. No friend of Christians. And so Paul is saying, pray for this unbelieving emperor. Pray for all those who are in authority over you. Pray for them. Pray that the Lord would restrain the evil in their hearts as they exercise this authority that God has actually given to them. Pray that their hearts would be directed towards that which is good and true and beautiful, ultimately even God himself. Pray for them. And the early church took this very, very seriously. They took this very seriously. As a matter of fact, you can go research this later if you want, but Clement of Rome, who was an early church father in the second century, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, he actually gives them an example of a prayer that they ought to pray for those who are in authority over them. Pray for them in the ways that I just said. Restrain the evil in their hearts. Lead them to uphold justice, to rule with integrity, and may they be saved. You can go read that prayer. Tertullian, another early church father, in his apology, same thing. Exhorting the church, pray, and the church did. And so, brothers and sisters, we come from a long line of God's people faithfully praying for the authorities over them. We can go back even further than the early church. We can go back even further than Paul, can't we? Because if you come to the evening service regularly, you know one of the passages that we cite there is Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And the context in which the Lord speaks this to his people through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah is when the people of God have sinned and so now they're in exile in Babylon. They've been conquered by their enemies, taken to a foreign land, no longer in the presence of the Lord in the temple, the place that the Lord has set apart for them, the promised land. And the Lord tells them in Jeremiah 29, 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. And so, brothers and sisters, this has always been the calling of the people of God to pray for all kinds of people, to pray for those who are in authority over us. doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have profound disagreements with them. But it means that we are to pray for them. So by way of application, what does this look like? Well, let's start with some negative application first. The first negative application is that our prayers should not just be filled with our own little concerns that regard just our own little world. Now, should we pray for those things? Absolutely. Lord, give me the strength I need today to work as unto you and not unto men. May I be a light in a dark place amongst my coworkers. Give me opportunities to share the gospel with them. Help me to make better relationships with my neighbors. Pray for my unbelieving family members. 
But brothers and sisters, if our prayers never go beyond our own little concerns and our own little world, then something's wrong. We ought to be praying for all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. We have so much access to so much information, it's almost overwhelming now, isn't it? So maybe limit yourself on how much news you take in. (laughs) That's not a command of God, that's just a suggestion. But sometimes you get overwhelmed and it's like, man, I've got so many things that I need to pray for, and we ought to pray for those things. But we ought not to just pray for our own small little world. And I, I can't help but thank the Lord for the work that he continues to do in us as his people, as his church. Because at Sovereign Grace, we do pray globally, don't we? We pray for concerns greater than just our own. Again, you see that in Sunday mornings, don't you? That's why we delegate as much time as we do to the pastoral prayer. Praying for our missionaries. Praying for those people groups that they're among. Praying for our government. For those governments that they might find favor our missionaries so that they can spread the good news. Or if you come to our evening services, you know that we're going to do that tonight. We break up into groups and we pray. One Sunday a month, we pray specifically for our governing officials and those who are in authority over us in a variety of ways. And so I'm thankful for how the Lord is causing us to pray. And I want you to know and thank him when we're doing that because we do that as his people in obedience to his commands, out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, and the conviction that he is the sovereign Lord over all. And then we should pray for all sorts of people individually as well. Again, the primary application is to the church gathered corporately, but secondarily, you should pray individually that way. You should pray with your family all sorts of prayers for all sorts of people. Because, brothers and sisters, again, this is our privilege. We know what pleases our Heavenly Father, and He gives us the desire to do it and the ability, the strength to do it. And so we ought to find great joy in praying for all sorts of people. So we've seen that we should pray all sorts of prayers for all sorts of people. And then lastly, let's look at why we should pray. Why we should pray. And Paul answers that question in verse 2. So let's look at that again. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, in answer to the question, why should we pray, there are so many more answers to that question than we could give our attention to tonight. Probably the ultimate reason why we ought to pray is because God has commanded us to. (laughs) And when we obey him, He uses prayer to bring glory to himself, and he's glorified in the prayers of his people. Another good reason that we could give is one that we've already talked about. Why should we pray? Because that's really the heartbeat of our communion with God. He speaks to us in his word. We speak back to him in prayer, and that's what we were created for. It's the access to God that we lost in the garden, but now that we have so that we can pray our Father who art in heaven. We have an audience with the creator of all through his son that he sent in love to redeem us. So anyway, you can see I'm getting carried away with the reasons why that we ought to pray. But what are the two reasons that Paul gives here in verse 2? He gives us two reasons. First of all, and you might miss this, but it's pretty clearly there. He says you ought to pray all sorts of prayers for all kinds of people with a specific emphasis on unbelieving authorities over you 
to the end that the government would function the way that it ought to. Do you think about that often? When you're complaining, as I do, about the government not functioning the way it ought to? Is your knee-jerk reaction, man, I need to pray more. Man, we as a church need to pray more for those who are in authority over us. Is that where you go? Because that's where Paul takes us. What's the reason why we ought to pray for the government to function the way it ought to? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So that we can lead respectable lives before the unbelievers around us. Now, respectable. Don't expect to necessarily be respected by the unbelieving world. But that's not really our concern. You can be respectable and not be respected by those around you. Being respectable is an objective thing. It's walking in accord with God's commands for the good of those around you and the glory of God. And so we ought to live respectable lives. And the government, its role is to help us in that. We don't have time again to go into this. There's so many texts I'd like to explore. I encourage you to go read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13 to understand what the biblical understanding of the role of the government is. Paul says there it doesn't wield the sword for no reason. It's to dissuade those who would lead not respectable lives, who would give themselves to wickedness and evil. It's meant to terrorize them. If you don't live in accord with the moral law of God that he's written on the heart of all image bearers, fear the government because they exist (laughs) to take you out or to dissuade you from continuing to participate in that. On the positive side, they're to protect and defend those who are walking in accord with the moral law of God and encourage them to continue to do more of the same. And so we ought to pray. Why? So that the government would function the way that God created it to function. Now, I don't know if we often think about this, but One of the implications of this is that when the government is not functioning the way that it ought to, it's actually judgment from God. You understand that, right? When the government's not functioning the way it ought to, it's actually judgment from God. Okay, so then how do we address that? Paul says, pray. The scriptures very clearly say, pray. Pray to the one who holds the heart of the king in his hand. And can turn it any way he will, Proverbs 21, verse 1. And so the question then is, do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that the Lord uses our prayers to restrain the evil in the hearts of those who are in authority over us? And that as we pray, the Lord answer those prayers and we have to pray that they would be saved. That they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... The first thing, before I get into application, the first reason we should pray this way, so the government functions the way that it ought to. The second reason we ought to pray, all sorts of prayers for all sorts of people with a particular focus on those in authority over us, is so that the church can function as it ought to under the protection of the state. Now, as soon as I say that, you go, wait a minute. So in order for the church to function the way it ought to function, the state has to be doing what it ought to do? No, I didn't say that. But that's the ideal. That's the way it's supposed to work. You can look throughout the history of the church and see that when the state was most opposed to the church, 
the church flourished in many ways. You can look at that happening in the world. Many of our brothers and sisters throughout the globe exist. Their daily life is under a government that hates them and wants to destroy them. And yet the Lord is causing the church to grow. It's difficult for them, isn't it? That's hard. When you're a refugee running from your government because it wants to end you because they know that you're a Christian now, it makes it really hard for the church to function the way it ought to function, doesn't it? It does. And so what Paul is saying is the ideal here is that the government functions the way that God created it to function. And under that umbrella, the church is then protected because the church is out doing good, making the good news known. And so then we're able to live peaceful, godly, pious lives in this crooked and perverse generation. That's what the Lord has called governing officials to do, and he will hold them responsible for that if they don't. So this is why we ought to pray, brothers and sisters. So the question then is, do we truly believe that God uses our prayers, as weak and feeble as they are, to bring about these sorts of changes in our world? And beyond that, do we truly believe that he's commanded us to pray this way? And then trust that he will use our prayers to whatever good end he sovereignly chooses. Because if we do, we will be given to prayer for these reasons. Now, here's the reality. If you're anything like me hearing all of this, because I don't just preach it to you, I preach it to myself as well, you're feeling convicted. I'm often characterized by not praying the way that I ought to. And I can tell you, the church has a lot of room to grow. We don't pray perfectly the way that we ought to by any stretch of the imagination and not praying as we ought to is a sin and so this is where we remind ourselves of the good news because the father has provided his son who lived a perfectly prayerful life in our place he did and on the cross he paid the penalty for our prayerlessness our sin of not praying and trusting in the Lord and that manifesting itself through prayer the way that we ought to. And he's done that for his church and he's done that for you and he's done that for me. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, then we're moved out of gratitude and thankfulness for having that fellowship restored and knowing the security that we have in Christ and his track record of fulfilling the law perfectly in regards to prayer, that now we have the privilege of growing in prayer, corporately and individually. That's our great privilege, to be able to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is our privilege. And it's our privilege, as we're praying, (laughs) to be reminded, I don't know about you, But as I'm praying, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I'm not sovereign. I know that theologically. Practically, I live sometimes like that's not true. And I think we all do, individually and corporately. But when we're praying, we're reminded, I'm not sovereign. And guess what? Those in authority over me aren't sovereign, whether I agree with them politically or not. Whether I think they're fulfilling their command from God to uphold that which is good and dissuade those from following that which is evil. 
Whether I agree with them or not, they're not sovereign. God is sovereign. And if we believe that, and we trust him, and believe that he's commanded us, and that we have fellowship restored with him, we will be given increasingly to prayer. And then what God wants us to know through the pen of the Apostle Paul this evening is that that is of first importance in the church. He wants us to know that, that we are to be a prayerful people who are corporately and individually constantly in prayer. And here's the thing. He's going to make us increasingly, progressively, by his grace, those sorts of people, from one degree of prayerfulness to the next, by the work of the Holy Spirit, even as we follow the one who did that perfectly in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, make it so in our midst, we pray. Amen.